Well, thank you very much, Valerie and John, for reading to us. You'll be aware that um, there's still quite a chunk in that chapter to come, and we're, we're doing it in two bites this week and next week, but let's pray to the Revealer of Mysteries, uh, as that's a title for God in, in the book of Daniel, and pray for his help in understanding his word this morning. We thank you, Lord, for that threefold acknowledgement that the Spirit of God, the Spirit of the Holy Gods, as they phrase it, was in Daniel. And we thank you that we can call on the work of the Holy Spirit, uh, your almighty divine Spirit, to open our eyes to your word this morning. And we pray you'd help us at least to begin to grasp what you'd have us see of yourself in your word as we study these words together. Help us to ponder it, help us to bow our knee to you as we listen to your word, help us to talk it over uh, with each other. And we pray that, very much we pray that your voice would be heard. We ask it, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. But I want to begin a slightly weird exercise, you might think this is, to start with. Uh, imagine that King Nebuchadnezzar had asked you to include him as a friend on Facebook, if that's a familiar bit of social media, you know, part of the world you live in. It, it is a bizarre thought, but perhaps verses 1 and 2 of the chapter, if you have it handy on a sheet of paper or on a Bible at home, I'd love you to keep it open. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4 of Daniel suggest that politicians today are not the only ones who want to communicate widespread um, by Facebook, Twitter, and whatever means they can if they have them available to them. Nebuchadnezzar had a message which he considered important for everyone, whoever they were, wherever they were, if you look at those verses again. King Nebuchadnezzar to the nations and people of every language who live in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. Obviously, with the advent of the internet, communication crisscrosses the globe very, very fast today. And we're able to tell people that we've never met about ourselves in a way that was unimaginable only a few years ago. And you'll be aware that some people take full advantage of the access to communication that we have. There was that story about a groom interrupting his own wedding to update his status on Facebook and Twitter. So as the minister pronounced the couple man and wife, the groom whipped out his mobile to tweet, standing at the altar with Tracy Page, he says, where just a second ago she became my wife. Got to go, time to kiss my bride. He then handed his wife the phone so she could change her Facebook profile from in a relationship to married. Now, Daniel 4 brings us the only man in the 6th century BC who had the power to tweet any change of status that he might have or might be about to have to everyone around the known world, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. But it isn't really a message about him at all, is it? Great king though he was, it's all about an even greater king, the God of heaven and earth. 
So just see what he says about God in verse 3. How great are his signs. How mighty his wonders. His kingdom, not mine, his kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures not just a few years, but from generation to generation. Presumably, if his kingdom is an eternal kingdom, which endures from generation to generation, then this king, God Almighty, obviously is big news not just for all people, but for all time. That means every one of us here, whether we're Christians or not, we've all got something to learn from Nebuchadnezzar's communication feed way back years ago. And he was talking about a change of status. I don't know if the change of status page still exists or column still exists in Facebook. But change of status was definitely what he was talking about. It's referred to as the chapter goes on. The last sentence of the chapter, which you don't have in front of you on the service sheet, but we'll get to it next week, tells you about what God is up to in his life. Uh, This is a, a telling sentence. Nebuchadnezzar acknowledged this. Those who walk in pride, he, God, is able to humble. Last verse of the chapter. Those who walk in pride, God is able to humble. And that is Nebuchadnezzar's own testimony. God had humbled him. So this week and next, I want to follow that process of God humbling the greatest person in the known world at that time um, through three different stages. And this week, to begin with, we'll look at stage one. I'm actually just going to look at verses 1 to 17 before we look at the other two stages next week. We'll pick up John's reading next week and look at it in more detail there. But first stage, stage one, was this. God humbled Nebuchadnezzar through his dream. Uh, In verse 4, everything is going absolutely fine for him. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. So one moment, everything is fine and dandy. It's all okay. But Nebuchadnezzar wasn't the first or last person to discover that health, wealth, and happiness are very fragile commodities. What a change in just one verse. Verse 5, I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying in my bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. Now, cast your mind back if you've come for the last few weeks as we've been journeying through the prophecy of Daniel. This sort of thing had happened before because there was a dream he had earlier about a massive statue of gold, silver, iron, and clay which got smashed by a rock. That uh, dream was recorded in chapter 2 of the book. And As in that chapter, the court of the king here can't unlock the meaning of this dream, no matter which expert he asks. Um, Magicians, I love the list you get in verse 7. Magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. You get the sense always in, um, 
in Daniel, in the court of Nebuchadnezzar and the others, that, that there were loads of flunkies everywhere around. So I, I loved last week the reading we had where poor Josh had to read about all the different instruments in the orchestra and how anybody can read that without getting your words jumbled up because you've got the sack, but the lyre, the zither and everything else. And all these different flunkies were playing the tunes to get people to bow down to the statue then. Well, all these flunkies here, lots of different sort of people to interpret the dreams, magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and I'm sure that we're meant to be having a sly chuckle as we read these long list of people who can't tell him what the dream means. Same happened in chapter 2, which makes, of course, the king even more unsettled. Nobody can help him. I wonder, is it not the case that one of the hardest things in the last 18 months for us has been that all the experts haven't quite been able to satisfy our hunger to know what will happen next. Is that something you think is a a true analysis of the last 18 months? Not magicians, astrologers, diviners and enchanters today, but scientists and health officials and economists and diplomats and counselling experts, and so on and so forth. That's not intended to dismiss their disciplines and to rubbish their wisdom. God knows we need it. But human wisdom isn't enough to unlock the knowledge of God. And I'm sure that point is being made here in our chapter. There are other similarities to the dream in chapter 2 in the vision we've got here. Let me just reread verses 10 to 15 just to get a, a little bearing on the dream itself. These are the visions, he says, I saw while lying in my bed. I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant. On it was food for all. Under it, the beasts of the field found shelter, and the birds of the air lived in its branches. From it, every creature was fed. In the visions I saw while lying in my bed, I looked... And there before me was a holy one, a messenger, coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, cut down the tree and trim off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches. So once again, like chapter 2, this is a dream where something very big, very impressive, comes crashing down to the ground. But there is good news. Let the stump and its root, bound with iron and bronze, remain in the ground in the grass of the field, says verse 15. A new beginning is possible. From that stump, new growth may yet come. Now, I read a little bit about the Holy One coming from heaven. You may have noticed the dream itself has some interpretation included in it. Uh, Presumably, That Holy One comes in the dream while Nebuchadnezzar was still asleep. The heavenly messenger, an angel, gives the command for the tree to be chopped down. So within the dream itself, as it's retold, this is even before Daniel gets to open his mouth, the angel explains something of what's happening in verse 17. The decision is announced by messengers. The Holy Ones declare the verdict so that, here's the point of it all, the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of people. 
Well, no wonder Nebuchadnezzar is worried. Even if he starts tonight contented and prosperous, all it takes, understandably, is a dream like that to shake him to his boots. His kingdom is not unshakable. But a God who predicts things through dreams, a God who knows the end from the beginning, well, that's slightly different, isn't it? He really is in control of the kingdoms of mankind. It looks like Nebuchadnezzar is a huge, mighty tree. You can see him all over the earth. All the animals are fed by him, as it were. It looks like he's in control on earth. But he isn't. And God sends the dream to make that clear. Because the dream is a revelation of the future that Nebuchadnezzar, with all his retinue, doesn't have access to. God humbles Nebuchadnezzar by the dream. As he humbles us, if we are know-it-alls. Now, we're at a different point in salvation history, but I think the question is still there for us. Are we willing to let God be God? Are we willing to let God tell us that we don't know everything there is to know? Are we willing to let God have the right to call the shots in our life, in our world? And it seems to me that revelation is the area where this is often played out. In in that case, it was through a dream, which he couldn't understand. We come later on in the timeline of God's plans and purposes for people, and the Bible is such a precious gift to us. It tells us the future. It's not just information. It is the work of the Holy Spirit to bring the Bible into being in the first place and to speak through it today. And if you have an open Bible and the Spirit of God in your heart... It is as if God is taking you by the hand into his future. And I may not know the future myself, but by the Spirit and the Word, I have access to the future in a way that even the greatest politicians of the day don't, unaided. So our attitude to the Bible will be how this is often played out in our lives. Are we humble enough to allow God to correct our thinking and to guide our steps and to keep us pointing onwards to his future, even if that future is not immediately obvious to us. Is God's word able to change the way we think? When we come in the Bible to bits that we don't like or we instinctively think are wrong, are we able to say, I don't fully understand this, God, but you know best. And to know that he's taking me somewhere good because he is a good God. I can trust him, even when maybe I don't like what I think I'm reading in Scripture. Those are the areas that I think it plays out for us. So we say humbly, Lord, I don't know the best how to live my life, how to direct the ways of the church in my case. Please teach me. And it'll be a matter of pride if I won't let God do that through his word. 
So the rest of the chapter will continue these themes until we get to that last verse. Those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. That's Nebuchadnezzar's tweet right at the end of the whole extended episode. But you see what the message Nebuchadnezzar wants to communicate to you and to me is. He's saying, don't put God in the same position as I did. As if God is somehow there to serve me. And I'm the great one. Those who walk in pride, God is able to humble. And the point, of course, is that God is very gracious. He'd far rather that we humble ourselves rather than that we have to be humbled by him. And from our vantage point, many centuries on, after the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, it seems to me this should be an even more obvious message for us. Maybe you remember one of Jesus' parables was also about a tree. And I can't help feeling that Jesus told his parable of the mustard seed with this dream of Nebuchadnezzar in mind. Jesus says there that the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed which grows into a huge tree, so huge that the birds of the air shelter in its branches. And the echoes of Nebuchadnezzar's dream are too obvious for that to be a coincidence. Jesus is saying that his kingdom is the great king, kingdom, and that he is the great king. He's the king who provides shelter, not Nebuchadnezzar, and not you and me, if we've got delusions of grandeur. And therefore, I want to point us on to that great king and to remind us to humble ourselves before him. Let's remember particularly as we come to communion and focus on Jesus' death that in his kingdom... The only way up is down. He's a king that models that that, uh, supremely in the way he gave up his life. There's a a poem or a hymn that I've come across that uh, David Adams managed to locate where it was from. It's powerful. Just listen to this as I close. The kingdoms of the world go by in purple and in gold. They rise, they flourish, and they die. And all their tale is told. One kingdom only is divine. One banner triumphs still. Its king a servant. And its sign a cross upon a hill. Well, let's pray in the name of that king as we continue our service now. We want to humble ourselves before you, Heavenly Father. We acknowledge that we do not know the future. But you do. Uh, We are not great. Uh, We are not in charge of our destinies. But we know one who is in the Lord Jesus. And we thank you for his willingness, though he was great, though he was rich, yet to become poor, that we, through his poverty, might become rich. And we want to humble ourselves before that great model of humble service. We thank you that he died for us. We thank you that he lifts up the humble. And we pray that he would graciously uh, lift us up with him. Help us to work out where we are proud and in need of humbling even today. And we pray his spirit would rest on us to make us more like him.
for Jesus' sake. Amen.